Our reading of scripture is gonna be from John chapter eight, starting in verse two. Would you hear the word of God? Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, commanded to, or, or rather, excuse me, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin, without sin, throw the first stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Kids bring a lot of joy in, into our lives, don't they? But, you know, sometimes people might see things a little differently. Uh, when I was an associate pastor at Canterbury United Methodist Church here in Birmingham, years and years ago, there uh, was a membership class almost like our Asbury Engage. And I was used to talking to people who were wanting to join the church uh, about their history, their spiritual history, where they had been in church before. Most often, people that joined a church like Canterbury were people that grew up in Methodist churches or they were often people that grew up in church, but in very different uh, churches. For instance, a, a husband might have grown up Catholic and the wife may have grown up Baptist and they were trying to find the exact middle and they landed on the Methodists. And so, you know, we had all these different stories that would always circulate through these membership classes. And rarely were you ever surprised, but there was one class where uh, one of the families that joined the church talked more about why they left their previous church versus why they chose our church. They had been in a, in a church in the Birmingham area before coming to Canterbury. It wasn't a Methodist church. And they were attending one Sunday when there was a baby in the service. And the baby was making a little bit of a fuss and it kept going and going and going. And the preacher stopped preaching for a moment and said, I want to remind you, we have a nursery. And then the preacher kept preaching again, like I'm doing now. And all of a sudden, the baby kept crying and crying and crying. And you could feel everybody get a little nervous. And then the pastor stopped the sermon and said, I will continue preaching once the baby goes to the nursery. And so there was this very awkward moment where the family left the church. 
went out of the service. I'm not sure if they stayed or not, but here's this family that wanted to join that Methodist church because they felt like the children weren't seen as a blessing. They were seen as a disturbance in worship. Now, I wasn't there in the room. I don't know exactly how it happened. That's one reason why I'm not going to tell you and never will tell you the name of that church. (laughs) Because I'm reporting what was experienced, not what happened. Do you see? Somebody experienced a place where children were seen as being a disturbance in the service instead of being welcomed as participants just like everybody else. I'm reminded about when we do a baptism in the Methodist church, we often recite an important passage of scripture, especially whenever a child is baptized in the church. We remind people that Jesus himself was sitting and teaching and some children wanted to come and sit with him, almost like these children sat with Michael and I today, Pastor Michael. And the disciples are trying to shoo the children away because Jesus is too important for a bunch of little kids like that. And Jesus stopped them and said, do not hinder them. Don't stop them from coming to me for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You know, how we look at people sometimes reveals our own biases and our own issues more so than what truly lies in their own heart or in their own lives. And I think if we can learn to see like Jesus, then other people around us will see someone who looks at them with loving eyes, healing eyes, maybe even eyes that bless them. And if people can see eyes like that, especially in a church, maybe they will feel safe in the midst of Jesus. And isn't that one of the most important things that everyone can come to the cross, everyone can come to the feet of Jesus and feel safe, to feel welcome, to know that God's love for them is real and it can transform them? So I want to tell you that if we can learn to look at other people like that, and we're going to continue this sermon series for the next three weeks as well to talk about how to listen like Jesus, how to speak like Jesus. But today we're going to talk about what it means to see like Jesus. So we turn to the scripture that we have addressed for today. Pastor Michael read for us from the Gospel of John chapter 8. Now, if you were to open up the Gospel of of John chapter 8, you'll notice something very interesting depending on the Bible that you pick up. In most Bibles, there are brackets around the passage that we just read. And that often tells you that John chapter 8, including the ending of the Gospel of Mark, has the same brackets in it. And it tells you that there are manuscripts of the Bible that do not contain this story. In fact, most people believe that the very first uh, site of John chapter 8 verses uh, 1 through 11 occurred around 400 AD. That's the first manuscript that they have found where this passage is included. Other older scriptures, the farther back you go in time, omit this passage. And so some people have thought, well, we should just take it out. We shouldn't read it. We shouldn't treat it as scripture. And yet Bibles 
after 400 AD have included this passage, sometimes in this place, sometimes in other places within the Gospel of, of John. But mostly it seems to have stayed in the Bible because, because it seems consistent with who Jesus is and how Jesus acted towards others, particularly someone who has been known and, and claimed as a sinner. How Jesus treats sinners is consistent with chapter 8. So whether or not it should be bracketed or not, it's still a story I think that we can turn to and learn something from. If you were to read John chapter 8 exactly as it is, omitting the brackets, then John chapter 8 begins with people wanting to stone a woman. And then chapter 8 ends with those very same people wanting to stone Jesus himself. And so it fits within the narrative of John chapter 8 fairly well. So what happens is, is the scribes and Pharisees find a woman who has been apparently caught in the act of doing something she shouldn't. And instead of dealing with it, they bring this woman to the feet of Jesus and ask him what should they do to her. For a little bit of background, if you read John chapter 7, you'll know that Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem in the fall at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, sometimes known as Sukkot. And, and the Feast of the Tabernacles is sort of your harvest festival where people would come into town. In fact, it was one of those important festivals in Jerusalem where people would flood into the city. The population would balloon up with all these people coming to worship. It was a long festival, about a week. So this occurred, we think, the day after, or maybe two days after the end of the festival. And as you can imagine, with all those people coming to the city, not everybody leaves at the end. Some people stick around for a couple of days before they go. And so the population was still fairly large at the time. Jesus was teaching at the temple. People were probably in the city. There was probably a lot more people around. And as Jesus is teaching, he's attracting a crowd of people. And the scribes and the Pharisees are not happy about that. They look at him as a false prophet, as a fallen teacher. And they don't want people to be around him. So in the midst of all the people being in the city and all these people being right there talking to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman right in front of Jesus, expose her sin to everyone there, and ask Jesus what they should do to her. Now, can you imagine what that may feel like to be exposed like that in front of everyone and to have all those eyes looking at you? I mean, those eyes probably already condemned her, most of them, some of them probably looked at her with eyes of judgment or disgust or disdain. Some people may not have had the courage to even look at her. Maybe they looked away like we do sometimes when we feel a little shame looking at someone face to face like that. Maybe those are the kind of eyes that she encountered in the crowd that was around Jesus at that time. But I want you to notice something. They brought her not to actually deal with the situation she was caught in, but they actually want to catch Jesus. Do you see that? They did this, John tells us, to trap Jesus, to test Jesus. 
Jesus is really the one on trial, not this woman. He's the one that is trying to be tricked and trapped by the scribes and Pharisees so that he will be exposed as not being a real teacher and that the crowd will dissipate once they find out who Jesus really is. Or at least who the scribes and Pharisees think he is. So the woman is really just a pawn. They happen to find someone who's been caught in the act as a sinner and they're using her, not even treating her like a real human being, using her in order to trick and trap Jesus. They're biased against her. She's already guilty in their eyes and doesn't really deserve dignity. You know, sometimes we may have a bias like that. We may have already made determinations about other people just by the way they look, the way they talk, the way they dress. And sometimes we are completely wrong about our assumptions, aren't we? You know what happens when we assume. We make a prediction about who they are and how they're going to act. In fact, sometimes we even describe them or stereotype them in our minds the way we want them to be or think they should be. Back in 2008, my wife, uh, Julie, uh, made the Birmingham News, which I don't know if that's always a good thing, but she made the news in 2008 because it was announced that she was getting a new job. And the Birmingham News covers some of those Methodist moves from time to time. And in that article, it started out by saying, Discover United Methodist Church in Hoover will get a new pastor. And she is 29 years old. That's how the article started out online and in the print. Now, after about a year of being at this church, which she was appointed by our bishop to help revive the church, they had gone through a very tough couple of years. They had lost some numbers and attendance. They had lost uh, some members along the way, and she was appointed to help revive that church. After about a year, one of the elders of that church, one of the folks who was one of the wisest and, and most respected people, came to Julie and apologized to her after that year, and she said, I need to tell you something. When it was announced a 29-year-old female pastor was coming, I was one of the people that spoke out against that. I didn't think you were ready. I didn't think you were the right fit. But I was wrong. Now, it takes a lot of gut sometimes to admit that you're wrong, doesn't it? And she was biased, not knowing Julie, but by the age, by maybe something else, and wondering if she could do the work. Sometimes we have these biases, don't we? We have these assumptions about who someone is. And if we are cemented in those, sometimes we do not allow ourselves to see people for who they truly are. We may not even let them shine. We may not even let them get to the next step in our relationship with them because we box them in. Jesus uh, then does something else. Not only does he um, do something odd, he also confronts the people who brought this woman to him. So Jesus is there, we think maybe right outside the temple. It may not have been uh, dirt 
that he was standing on, but it may have collected dirt from the winds and everything that were going around. But he's standing somewhere where there is dirt of some kind. And, and, and Jesus apparently stoops down or bends down and starts drawing in the dirt. And John tells us about this, but he doesn't tell us what Jesus actually wrote. And there are a lot of theories. People really want to know what Jesus wrote in the ground. I can tell you a few. One is that he was writing scripture uh, in, the, in the ground. Uh, one of the other theories is that Jesus was writing out the sins of the scribes and Pharisees on the ground. I would love that to be true. Um, you know, but it doesn't seem to be that way because they are undeterred by whatever Jesus is writing in the ground uh, because they continue to pester him about what to do with her, right? They keep pressing him. What do we do? What do we do? Because they're wanting to trap Jesus. So Jesus stands back up and he looks at the scribes and Pharisees and he essentially says, you who are without sin may cast the first stone, right? You who are without sin may cast the first stone. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, if you think you're so innocent, step right up. In the Gospel of Matthew, where we read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, tells the people who are gathered there uh, that they shouldn't judge. In fact, he says, uh, why do you want to point out the speck? In some Bible verses, it's the speck of sawdust, the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a log or a plank jetting out of your eye, right? We are really good about diagnosing the sins of others, and we are usually pretty blind to our own sins. And when somebody else exposes our sins, how do we react? Not very well, do we? We often get angry. We often will yell and, and deny those sort of things, defend ourselves, right? But we're really more free with our diagnosing of other people's sins. Jesus says as much. In, in, in a way, what Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees is, you are really good at pointing out somebody else's sin. What about yours? Years ago, a United Methodist bishop preached at a very uh, progressive church outside of Washington, D.C. And this, this church was expecting this bishop uh, to not really be on their side with everything. And as he began preaching, they really liked the sermon because the, the bishop started talking about this conservative news opinion anchor on television was talking about how bad this person was. And it kept going and going and going about how bad this person was. And you can almost feel the congregation, the church saying, yes, finally somebody's preaching the truth, Right. And he kept going about this person. And then he got to the end of his sermon and he said, Jesus died for the whole world, including this man. And you could hear a pin drop, right? He said, Jesus didn't come to save nice social activists like you. He came to die for the whole world. Jesus died for this person as well. And it kind of exposed the biases of people, right? They were really ready to denounce someone without looking in their own sins, right? Their own assumptions as well. It goes both ways, right? No matter which side you fall on. We sometimes are really ready to name the sins of others without admitting our own sins. And Jesus uses this 
to expose that the people who are there are not as innocent as they sometimes feel. In fact, Pharisees are known for being people that follow the law to a T, right? They are the people that know the laws and do it religiously. And even they end up admitting that they're not without fault. Because after Jesus says this, they begin to leave one by one. And John tells us it starts with the oldest, the eldest of the scribes and Pharisees. The younger ones are kind of standing there holding on to their stones, right? They start seeing their elders leave and they start to realize, maybe I'm not as innocent. One by one they leave. And so the only person who is left is Jesus and the woman. And he says, woman, is anyone else here to condemn you? And she says, no, sir. Now, there are many passages in the Bible that talk about the sinlessness of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus. So notice, he says, if any of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And if those two things are correct, then the only sinless person who could throw a stone never even thought about picking one up. Do you notice that? The one sinless person who could have thrown a stone never even thought about picking one up. In fact, when he talks to her, this is the first time that we even know or can interpret that Jesus even looks at her. Remember, at first he looks at the Pharisees and scribes, then he writes in the dirt, and then finally he talks to her. And I wonder what kind of eyes he looked at her with. What kind of eyes did she see looking back at her? Because he doesn't condemn her. He does tell her to go and sin no more, but he doesn't condemn her. He treats her as a human being and asks her to do better, to have a better and more full life, right? Jesus looks at her with the kind of caring eyes that maybe invite her into a better life. There was a, a passage that I found online uh, from an author, and she was talking about how she was in a very bad time in her life when people started ignoring her and shutting her out, I'm guessing it was a painful time because she may have done something wrong. And, and she remarks in the online posting that it was at that time that there were people in her life that remembered her, that looked at her. They were the people that looked at her and understood that they had made mistakes too. And they came over to her house and got her out of bed and helped her walk. They were the ones that got to her house and brought a meal. They were the ones that took the kids to school, that did a load of laundry. They were the ones that looked at her with love and care and helped her get back to life. Friends, if we can learn to look with the eyes of Jesus, then the people in our lives will be seen by someone who cares like Jesus. They will be seen by people who want the best for them, not the worst, and if they look in our eyes and they see us looking with the eyes of Jesus, then I hope they will see eyes that care, that encourage, and that help. There are studies right now saying that there are people who are afraid to go into a church because they're afraid of the kind of eyes that will be looking at them. The kind of eyes that judge them, who feel like they are not welcome, that they are in fact probably not even worthy of being here. 
And who is worthy of being here? All of us are here by the grace of God. If we can learn to see with the eyes of Christ, then we can actually be some of the first people to help people take their step from whatever issues they are mired in into the next full moments of grace and peace. When we see others with the eyes of Jesus, it changes how we treat them, it changes how we act, and it changes maybe their perception of Jesus. And if we can be a part of that, what amazing changes could happen in someone's life? Would you pray? Holy and loving God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment. We ask that if, if we can, if we trust you, revive our hearts, revive our minds, and help us see with new eyes that we might see others the way you see them. Amen.